have you ever been really, really hungry? You're listening to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Carmella. And now let's tuck in to the gruesome history of this ultimate taboo. Welcome to episode three. This time we are joined by historian Richard Suck, Rick and Anton from the Curiosity of a Child podcast, and Teddy and Katrina from the Grave History podcast. Thanks for joining us today, Richard. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. It's great to be talking about this disgusting and appalling subject again. Would you like to tell us a little about who you are to get us started, please? I'm Richard Sag. I've lectured in English literature and cultural history at the universities of Cardiff and Durham between 2001 and 2017. I've written 13 books and the most popular perhaps are Fairies, Dangerous History and Mummies, Cannibals and Vampires. I'm also working on fairly marginal and taboo subject again for a new book, which is perhaps going to be the first of three on Disgust. First one coming up is Disgusting Entertainment with everything from people in bars betting they can eat a live rat uh, through to the Bullingdon Club and after the people who made their own disgusting entertainment consuming disgusting entertainment on television and film going right up to Fleabag Succession and anything disgusting that comes out in the next few months. I think disgusting entertainment perfectly describes this podcast as well so amazing. We'd love to start by hearing about some of the incidents of cannibalism that you've come across in your work. I know that you specialise in medical cannibalism and there's also famine cannibalism. Did you have any good stories that you'd like to start us off with? You don't really want to say any particular favourites given the topic, but considering it's us, any particular favourites? Yes, I have got hardened to this topic and I am capable of talking about my favourite instances of famine cannibalism. I was in a car with a parent and a child the other day on a trip away and had to be reminded that the little one of age eight in the back perhaps didn't want to listen to the story of the shipwreck in 1826 <laughs> when people started eating and drinking each other. So you can get rather over-familiar with your subject. But I'll start by sketching out the big picture here, really, which is Mummies, Cannibals and Vampires, I felt had to be written for various reasons. And one was that... The cannibals we'd forgotten about, the Christians in Europe, were busy eating, drinking, processing, selling, shipping one another for medicine, just as they were denouncing the cannibals of the New World as the scum of the earth, slaughtering them in the process in many cases, and taking over their lands in North and South America. So what was going on in terms of medicinal cannibalism in the 17th century was going on from the Middle Ages to some degree uh, until the time of Dr. Johnson, but it hit its peak probably late 17th century, Charles II, Robert Boyle, Thomas Willis, and into the 18th century. And this is important because people seem to get the idea that it's medieval in the sense perhaps of Quentin Tarantino, that it's so disgusting it must be medieval. They really barely got started in the medieval period. So 17th century, something we're not usually taught about the first three Stuart kings is this. James I refused corpse medicine. Charles II made his own corpse medicine and Charles I was made into corpse medicine at his execution. So with this going on, the instances of famine cannibalism that are definitely not my favourite, but ones that are notable, 1316, fairly standard English famine, perhaps caused by bad weather, insecurity of some kind, saw people in a jail being 
thrown into the jail with starving inmates and the newcomers being eaten half alive by those within the prison. We get down then to the wars of religion in Europe, and 1594 is an interesting one with Paris besieged. Uh, things get so desperate that there's actually a kind of official famine cannibalism when the authorities give permission for bread to be made from bones in, I think it's the Charnel House of the Innocents, and this is available by some point in the summer, and allegedly people die of eating it doesn't sound like it would make nice bread. <laughs> it's surprising what they made bread out of, as we'll see in a few moments in another context when we brandish the phrase, worst things happen at sea. <laughs> but yeah, in Germany in 1636, one of countless stories, we hear of a woman abducting two children, luring them into her house during a famine caused, of course, by the wars of religion raging across the continent. And the two children, both quite young, between about six and 11, are eaten by her and her neighbour after they've been killed. Perhaps the most memorable incident in the catalogue of famine cannibalism that I detailed was a character called Jean Delery, interesting anthropologist, I suppose you'd call him, who spent some time out in the New World with the Tupinamba, who were a cannibal tribe. And it seems that, fortunately for Delery, the cannibals, like academics and the mafia, only kill their own. <laughs> and he survived his time, came back to France and perhaps started wishing quite quickly that he was back with the cannibals of the New World because he returned to the devastation after the siege of Sancerre. It's, it's referenced in quite a lot of literature from the period being particularly severe. And there was a case where a couple of parents and the grandparent of a child were now looking at their dead child who'd simply died of famine, dehydration. And the grandmother persuaded the parents to cook the child and eat them. Larry was actually confronted with this visually, not just in the news of it, and his own body made a kind of spontaneous memorable decision on European civilization, and he vomited at the site, having, I think, kept his stomach contents in throughout his time with the cannibals in the New World. So this really sums up, I think, the hypocrisy of European Christians who are, in a routine way, producing cannibal medicine for over 200 years, making a good deal of money out of it, doing it in a scientific way. And of course, arguing explicitly or implicitly that it's okay. And they don't bother to defend it many times, actually. But when you kind of dig a little bit against the grain of what they're saying, the idea seems to be that there's raw cannibalism, which is the nasty cannibals who don't wear many clothes, don't have books and cities, etc. And then there's the cooked version, and the cooked version is it's cooked by science so that it's got this kind of shield of technology, if you like, and processing around it, which somehow makes it better. But of course, there's really nothing rawer than famine cannibalism. It's the result of total societal breakdown and utter blinding hatred, the degree of hatred between the Protestants and Catholics, probably familiar to any historian of religion of the period. But just to bring it home, we've got people who are actually eating each other in actually slightly ritualised ways in one case in Auxerre, or in just horrible, spontaneous ways, roasting someone on a spit during slaughters. Do you think there's a sense there of not self-projection, but a self-defence of rationalising your own form of cannibalism by saying, oh, our cannibalism scientific or we do it in a state of famine. It's not like 
those cannibals who are real cannibals and evil because theirs is religious or ritualistic, a sort of... A sort of misdirection, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think there is. Of course, it's different for the Protestants and the Catholics. The Catholics are always getting fired at the charge that they are cannibals mm. because they eat and drink their God. And it's pretty hard to avoid that if you insist and keep saying, no, it's not a metaphor, we really do it. Well, yep, you're cannibals and vampires. So it's different for the two of them, but I think both are doing it. And there's layers and layers, really, of irrational incredulity, if you like, and irrational hostility towards the new world. One of them being that it simply should not exist because it's apparently not in the Bible. This is something very basic and it's really been forgotten a lot of the time. And they spend a tremendous amount of time trying to explain how Noah got all his guys and the animals over there and all sorts of animals that you, know, you don't have in Europe. So this bothered them to a surprising degree. But yeah, the hypocrisy is titanic, really. And if anything points it up as well or better than the case of Valéry in Sancerre, there was another noteworthy moment in Rouen when they brought back, in a sort of well-meaning way, I think, as some tupinamba from the New World to see civilization and the Tupinamba were quickly wishing they were back home were absolutely thunderstruck at the fact that the place was devastated again by a recent burst of the wars of religion the reigning monarch was I think only 12 years old and they also simply couldn't get their heads around the absolutely radical habitual social injustice that prevailed there and stated to their hosts why do these poor hungry people not take the rich by their throats and set fire to their houses. So this meeting of East and West didn't go too well. The phrase eat the rich has been around a lot longer than we thought. There's one other in terms of, I suppose, social injustice actually again, and it's not the typical war and famine calendars we've been discussing, but it was Hungary in 1514. Hungary seems to be a particularly oppressive society in Europe, even by the standards of elsewhere in the continent or Britain. And there'd been an uprising against the nobles and the injustice of the country in 1514. It was put down savagely, to say the least. And the leader, Georg Dotzer, was executed in this manner. He had his followers jailed near him. They were kept starving, I think, without any food, perhaps any water whatsoever, for maybe two weeks, for a considerable period of time. And Dotzer was then put on a white-hot iron throne with a white-hot iron crown. And after this, with him roasted, his followers fell on him and ate him in desperation. See, this almost ties very nicely in a segue to a question that I've had quite a bit when we've been focusing not only on survival cannibalism, but the crossover between different types of cannibalism, as in where do the boundaries lie, thinking that the argument can be made that medical cannibalism is in and of itself a form of survival cannibalism, social cannibalism in that instance. While it's definitely got political and ritualistic leanings, I think it's fair to say there is an argument that at its heart a lot of these instances are about survival, even if they're not all exclusively on the life and death situations that we tend to cover on the podcast. Yeah, well, that's a, an interesting point, which triggers a lot of interesting angles for looking at these questions. I suppose one thing it brings up is that 
your endocannibalism, funerary cannibalism, which survived perhaps into the 1960s in Brazil, is very emotional, very ritualistic, powerful, religious, essentially. Important to those who participate in it, important to the person dying, knows they're going to be eaten, they want to be eaten when they die. And then you've got exocannibalism, which is ferocious, but is passionate, is emotional, is about identity, and is honourable in a lot of cases. And then you've got medicinal cannibalism, which is kind of proto-capitalistic, I suppose, really. It's extremely impersonable, you could say pretty dishonourable, eating execution victims. And yeah, it's hard-headed, it's pragmatic, it's profitable. So when you look at it that way, the European Christians don't come out of it terribly well again. They sort of create a commodity of body parts with the import of mummies or like you said the creation of mummy out of executed criminals absolutely i mean that commodity is a perfect word for it because they didn't talk about mummies which would imply people or even artifacts they talked about mummy you almost always heard it in the phrase mummy in the way you'd hear cheese or milk you know it's some of a commodity and that was all that mattered to them the most unforgettable to me, I suppose, moment in a pretty roller coaster research ride was the question of Ireland and all the skulls with moss on them from an unburied body. These were rolling into England by ship for a long time, from perhaps 1560s, but they were still doing so, it seems, around the 1750s and until I think about 1780, so into the era of George III, there was a tax, there was an import tax on human skulls. Wow. You don't get much more commodified than that. Nothing is certain apart from death and taxes and taxes upon dead bodies. <laughs> yeah, it's a new way of looking at the old phrase. Yeah. That's one of the things that comes up quite a lot in all of our research. There's a lot of focus on what is being consumed isn't quote-unquote human. You have the disregarding of head, hands, fingers, particularly human organs and elements. And then you have, in contrast, these recipes for medicinal cannibalism that is... It is like you're ordering something from a shop because you need some powdered skull. And I don't know whether that separation between physically handling a body to survive and one would assume being able to order that difference there between how immediate the body is. No fellow Britons, as it were, were more radically dehumanised than the Irish. It was absolutely extraordinary. And really, they certainly treated the tribes of the New World sometimes with much more respect and humanity, actually, than they did the Irish. You have Humphrey Gilbert in the field in the 1560s, knighted for his pains in war crimes, slaughtering everybody on the basis that no women or children could shelter or feed the supposed rebels whose country Gilbert was actually in. And anyone who dared supplicate to him in the field coming up to his tent would have to walk through a strange kind of rockery path, which was made out of, in parallel, two rows of human heads cut off that day. And it goes on and on. I mean, it runs down right to the famine, where you've simply got a million or more people dying in a country from which England are forcing exports of grain and people dying in a condition of just unimaginable suffering and famine. It was actually something that we ended up cutting out of our episode on the Irish famine because we didn't actually believe our own research until we double-checked it. But it was only last year that the Irish population returned to pre-famine levels. 
That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah, of course, a huge amount of emigration as well as the deaths. Yeah. It just seems so unbelievable that we've got to have got something wrong. But no, those are the genuine numbers. And I think the impact of the English in Ireland is often very understated. This has turned away from cannibalism a little. Yeah, enough cannibalism. I think let's talk about famine vampirism instead, perhaps. Yes, please. We've done the mummies, we've done the cannibals. On to the vampires, please. Okay, so throughout the 19th century, I don't know if anyone's seen or read the drama by Golding, To the Ends of the Earth. It's a terrific thing, if not. And it's about sailing to Australia. And it really does ram into your skull the actual meaning of what now seems a very sort of loose, idle phrase, worse things happen at sea. So tremendous number of people, of course, at the mercy of the seas in the 19th century. And ship called the HMS Blondes, people surviving in desperate conditions in 1826. I think it was the Sandwich Islands or thereabouts. And presently they start to butcher those who die naturally. They're not killing them as far as we know. And they butcher them, drink the blood. And the vampire ethics of the ship get interesting at one point. A woman called Anne Saunders is particularly adept at butchering up corpses, particularly fearless, and she has a knife with her all the time. And she gets a touch of a bit of romance here, the relief to hear. She gets affianced to a chap called James Fryer during the voyage. I suppose there's not much to do at sea for all those weeks. And he dies, unfortunately, and there is a tussle over his, let's hope, dead body between Saunders and I think a mate of the ship called Clark. And Saunders overcomes Clark, seizes the cup for the blood as the throat is cut, and drinks two cups of Friar's blood to the one allowed to Clark, on the basis that he was her fiancé, so she has got the greater right to the goods. She gets dibs. So this vampirism at sea, which sounds like, I think, is a YA book series, actually, of vampires. I was also, when I was reading your book earlier, The Mummies, Cannibals and Vampires, really struck by the case of Pope Innocent VIII, Mm. because you don't think of popes as being vampires. I wondered if you could quickly go over that story as well, because I don't think Alex has heard it. I wasn't allowed to read it. No, with pleasure. So Innocent VIII was dying in 1492, and the story goes, it's not the securest story, terms of authenticity in the book but it goes that he had his physician bled three healthy youths with the promise of a ducat apiece presumably they thought they were going to lose a couple of pints of blood which in the period wouldn't be such a big deal and they were bled until they died innocent was given this blood to drink from what we know actually of blood toxicity iron toxicity in smaller quantities than that could have just finished him off and whether he should have lived on this vampire diet of course only god and probably a catholic god can say But yeah, some people attributed the story to his detractors, of whom he perhaps rightly had quite a few. But it would not be really the bottom of the league table for papal ethics, if you know anything about the Renaissance papacy, was far from the worst thing they'd ever done. But the fact that that is coming from the head of the Catholic Church, honestly, potentially, allegedly, believing that to drink the blood of children... Yeah, what can you say? I think really there seems to be an unofficial competition to be the biggest bastard in history between various of the Renaissance popes. You know, Alexander supposed to have committed his first murder before he was 12. At least one of them was supposed to have caught syphilis, which doesn't quite go with your strict Catholic ethics and so on. You know, you could go on all night, really. 
So in the grand scheme of things, drinking the blood of three people isn't actually the worst. No, I suppose it shows you how desperate the physician was to rescue the Pope. Quite important to try and do it for your career. I mean, as far as we know, the problem with being a Renaissance Pope is if you did anything too decent and too humane, you usually ended up getting murdered <laughs> for your pains. Adrian Deedle was the accidental Pope, kind of comical business where two factions of cardinals got fed up with a stalemate and both voted for this guy who no one had ever heard of. He wakes up one morning and suddenly finds he's the damn Pope and decides to clean up the shop and eventually is poisoned in a matter of a few months from interfering with business. Now that one sounds like a rather strange. YA novel. <laughs> mm, it'd be a good one, actually. I mean, it depends if parents think that 12 year olds should do this sort of stuff. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for that horrific tour through the history of various forms of cannibalism. Did you have any upcoming projects or work that you'd like our audience to know about before we let you go? One is just that do buy the new edition of Mummy's Cows and Vampires if you want it. Don't buy the old ones, they're much more expensive and this is up to date. So the black cover, white lettering, you get much more horror for much less money. I have actually also written fiction. It's probably not the best thing to advertise in this context, but I've written two children's books, which I think are terrific fun. And both are kind of eco-parables, so they are timely, I suppose. Our Week with the Jaffle Hunters is one and Ride Your Horse with the Chocolate Sauce is the more recent one. Lots of adventure, lots of fun, some thrills, but no cannibalism, no vampires, unless you count the evil Tory that is involved in the second book. I think we do. Wonderful. We'll put links to those in the show notes for people who want to investigate further. to a podcast you start to develop a bit of a parasocial relationship with people you like think the people in your podcast recording are actually your friends and we are obviously the friends of everyone who listens to casting lots that's true i mean that is how it works and that's definitely how it works with our next guests who i just decided one day were my friends and now they are my friends so i'd like to welcome from curiosity of a child rick and anton so if you'd like to tell us a little bit about yourselves and your feelings on cannibalism hello yes i'm rick and i'm with my son anton who is 11 are you 11 no, no you're 12 now that's embarrassing <laughs> Yeah, so we're from the Curiosity of a Child podcast, which is a history and science podcast. But we also like to do some recreations and things. And we're big Casting Lots fans too. Now, cannibalism is an interesting one, isn't it, Anton? Because we did an episode on corpse medicine, where we actually recreated some of the traditional recipes, like where they would do a, a tincture from bone and blood and moss from skulls and things and human brain and mellified man. So I think that's probably why we've been invited along today. We're no experts in cannibalism. I'm sure you've had guests on who know more than we do. From the sounds of it, not as many with this kind of practical, scientific level of experience. Well, I think with history, you've got to live it. I mean, we may not have used real humans, but I'm going to leave that for you to decide. <laughs> that was going to be my next question, actually. Presumably not with human remains. No. <laughs> There's an area of doubt there, you know. Any legal concerns can neither confirm nor deny. Exactly, it's a grey area. We're based in Guernsey, and I don't know what the cannibalism laws are here. Because I know in Japan, there are no cannibalism laws. 
is I've got an interesting story actually about a Japanese man. I think I know what this might be. Yes, he's a Japanese illustrator, Mao Sugiyama, and he's an illustration artist. And in 2012, he put out a tweet saying that he's asexual. So he was going, he had his genitalia removed. And he put out a tweet asking people if they would like to come to a banquet where they would get to eat said pieces of removed anatomy. So six people signed up and they paid about $250 each. Not very much. That is cheap. Yeah, but I don't think you're getting much meat there between six people. <laughs> That's true. Only five people turned up, though. But there was one no show. And then he cooked his testicles and his penis. But some of the diners, they described it as rather rubbery and uh, the texture and very bland. And there was another guy, he said that the chef didn't cook it right. What a waste of a perfectly good penis. Penis is pretty tough and needs to be slow cooked. (laughs) How does he know? I don't know. I'm guessing maybe from other animals. It's a bit different from the Redditor who had his leg amputated after a motorbike crash and then had tacos. Yeah, we saw that one as well. I'm not quite sure of if I'd like to do that myself. There's something about eating people, which I know it's a bit of a line to cross. We tend not to be interested when people are just doing it for fun. Yeah, we take a stance here at Casting Lots that wait until it's your only option. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably sensible. And then suddenly it'll be much more of a banquet than you could ever anticipate. <laughs> On the subject of ways to cook human flesh and recipes, I believe Alex has thrown out a challenge to you two. Inspired by your corpse medicine episode, mm-hmm. I did want to see what culinary delights you could come up with when it came to the various descriptions of survival cannibalism. Well, we've actually gone and cooked a full banquet, which we have here with us to recreate this. <laughs> Hopefully you can see the axe, because we need to start off with an arm. Yeah. So, Anton, can you do the honours, please? Oh, Ow! That's my arm. <laughs> Great sound effects. Yeah, so we've got an arm here. It's difficult to get reliable descriptions, I think, of actually what people taste like, because there's so many different things. Pork seems to be the most common. Long pig, the classic. Yes, but then some people also say veal. I think with humans, there's a lot of myoglobin in there. And then that's what kind of binds the, or helps the blood and the, or the oxygen go into the blood. And that's what gives meat its red colour. And it's about 2% in human flesh. So beef is only about 0.8% and then pork is 0.2%. So that's what's going to give the colour. So uh, humans actually going to be a really, really red meat, even though people call it the other white meat. Because I think when you cook it, it goes a little bit grayer. And then maybe when, if you've got a survival cannibalism situation, you're not going to be butchering the meat properly. So you're not going to be draining the blood out of it either. It's going to be even redder and you're going to get all that blood flavour there. <laughs> Do you want to try some arm, Anton? Yep. It feels weird eating my own arm here. <laughs> <laughs> so what is our human arm made of slash taste like? It tastes okay. Like pig. What's it made of? Made of pancetta. So William Seabrook, he was a journalist for the New York Times, and he gave one of the best accounts, supposedly, of how human flesh tastes. He said, it was so nearly like good, fully developed veal that I think no person with a palate of ordinary, normal sensitiveness could distinguish it from veal. It was mild, good meat with no other sharply defined or highly characteristic taste, such as, for instance, goat, high game and pork. The steak was slightly tougher than prime veal, a little stringy, but not too tough and stringy and agreeably edible. 
The race from which I cut and ate a central slice was tender in colour and texture, as well as taste. That there are doubts over whether this is a valid quote or not, because apparently the people who he was with, they didn't really trust him. So it's probably that he made it up. And as I said, most things seem to be pork, where the taste is coming from. They just fed him some veal and were like, yeah, that's human. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Though it does seem to be that human can be quite a good base meat if it has these properties. You know, it can be anything from chicken to veal to, I think my favourite is cream milk. <laughs> which I think we decided was just him being absolutely sick of being asked what human tasted like. Mm-hmm. You're like, yeah, it tastes like milk. I'm not sure about that myself. I think we've heard rotten cheese. That's for brains. That's brains, okay. Brains taste like rotten cheese, like sort of cottage cheese, apparently. Oh, the texture. I don't like the idea of the texture. For some reason, the texture of brains is more viscerally unpleasant than just the idea of having, like, a human burger. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What does rotten flesh taste like? Quite sweet. I think that in most of the accounts of survival cannibalism we've had, not all of them, but in a large proportion, the flesh has not been at prime freshness by the time it's been consumed. (laughs) No, that's one thing I've wondered as well is, does people's diet influence how people taste? Because if you think, you go to the supermarket and there'll be chicken and they'll be oh, it's fed on corn or it's a free-range chicken and they're trying to do that as obviously the well-being of the chicken and also it's going to be more succulent and tasty. So it's like the same with people and our diets. Particularly if people are malnourished before they are cannibalised, then that's got to influence the flavour too. Also, in the quartz medicine episode, we had mellified man, which is where they were fed with honey. So that changed the taste of them apparently. Yeah, so this was, I don't know if it's true or not, but this was one of the old Chinese medical books. And one of the recipes, the author, he said it came from Arabia. And he wanted actually any readers to validate whether this was a true recipe or not. So they'd take an old man coming into like the later years of his life and they would just feed him honey. That's all he would eat until he died. And then they would seal him up in a stone coffin with more honey. So he'd be infused and then they'd leave him in there for, I think it's sometimes up to several years. And I guess the honey would crystallise a bit as well. And then they would slice his body. And so it's not exactly survival cannibalism. It's more of a tasty little snack for the afternoon or something or the evening. You said the honey would crystallise as well there. Does that mean you'd have a crunchy snack as well? Candied human. Yeah, it could be quite nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't remember Mary Berry doing that one in her latest Christmas recipe book. But surely it was a question of needing someone to confirm if the recipe was real. I'm like, the recipe's real. Whether or not it was ever, you know, cooked is another matter. But we can make any recipe within, you know, Mm -hmm. the constraints of our imagination. It's just whether we have the confidence and (laughs) legal defence to put it together and trial it out. When you cook snails to eat, you're meant to feed them on just garlic milk for a few days to clean out their systems and make them all garlicky. And so I wonder if, you know, that might help with the issue of the meat not being very flavourful if you fed your victim a lot of garlic beforehand. Your victim. (laughs) (laughs) See, we are just slowly walking away from the survival aspect here. Uh, Yeah, but we've got to be careful what ground we go onto, yeah? Yes, I think maybe you don't care so much what it tastes like when it's your only option. (laughs) No, but then you'd also have, if you're doing your survival cannibalism, you're also going to 
try and find some other things to flavor it. So this was a little bit inspired by some of your stories. So maybe we'd have like dandelions or something that people picked. But you're going to want to maybe if you're eating people, you you want to add something else to it. Salad, balanced meal. Salad, exactly. Diverse diet. Looking more at maybe how we could recreate some of these in a modern way. So one of my favourite episodes, and I think yours as well, is the Medusa. Mm-hmm. Which is fantastic. I mean, or is it three days or something and they start? Three days. Three. I mean, that's incredible. How people get into that kind of state of mess, I don't know. Because you think about a lot of them and they're at least 100 years ago, most of them, or longer ago. So back then you're going to have very poor communication, very slow communication, navigation's much more basic. And particularly some of the expeditions like the polar ones where, I mean, they are going into the unknown and they are away for years and they know that. So some of it's expected that they're going to have difficulties. But with the Medusa, I mean, for them to go in three days from a working ship to eating each other is insane. So I've made a second meal here where I've got just some pork tipolatas and I've done a red wine jus. Oh, Perfect. <laughs> Because they were all drunk. <laughs> and we've got some ship's biscuits. And I thought they might have managed to scram some vegetables somewhere. So I've got some dandelions in the garden and I've cooked their roots. So maybe getting slightly from the Medusa one there, but for general survival cannibalism, you're finding the local roots. Some carrots, which we call wild carrot. And also just some greens from the garden, which I think might be a way to make an authentic kind of modern recipe. To bring together all those flavours of cannibalism. And also with the ship's biscuits, I remember they said that they got soggy, didn't they, when they took them onto the Medusa? Yeah. So I've got the ship's biscuits here and some seaweed. There's some local seaweed, which is really, really healthy and good for you, but have a smell, Anton. That's disgusting. (laughs) It smells of the sea. If you could take the sea and condense it down into just its pure essence of smell, this is what it is. So do you want to go, Anton? Not really, but... (laughs) Imagine you're starving... The thing with this podcast is it could always be worse. You could always be eating something worse. What's the verdict on that one then, guys? Oh, my word. Hates the water. It's disgusting. That's not very pedant. I mean, I apologise to the people who make the seaweed. (laughs) Neptune himself. Oh, no. Yeah, so that's pretty unpleasant. But when you're in that survival situation... Our listeners can't see Rick on Anton's faces, but we can confirm that they do not look like they're having a fun time. <laughs> no, it's not that nice. But I think if you haven't eaten anything, then it's going to be going to be delicious. Or you're going to force yourself to eat it. I mean, it's the rule of three, isn't it? For how long you can survive without. A human can survive without oxygen for three minutes, without shelter for three hours, without water for three days and without food for three weeks. I've survived longer than three hours outdoors. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the same. Shelter from bad conditions. Okay, like if I was in a blizzard. Yeah, not just waiting at a bus stop. Three <laughs> well, hours. I mean, bus stops are quite bad conditions, to be fair. So was that seaweed and ship's biscuit? That was, yeah. So that's a nice little side for the main dish. Well, this is your starter because it's what you eat before you get desperate enough to eat the bodies. And then when that's out of the way. (laughs) Yes. It's a palate cleanser, I'd say. Oh, I do have a palate cleanser for the last course, don't worry. (laughs) No. Would you like some dandelion root, Anton? Not really. You need to add to your diet. Also disgusting. That's crunchy as well. That's roasted. I hope it is a dandelion and not something poisonous. That just tastes of burnt stuff. (laughs) 
something from out the garden. Yeah. Eat the mystery room. Find out what happens. This could be our last ever recording. <laughs> a lot of explorers do tend to do that. <laughs> this is definitely a foodstuff. What's next on the menu card? Well, just before we go on to our, our next course, have you heard of Bite Labs? No. Now, this is an interesting idea. Well, actually, it's a horrible idea, I think, <laughs> where you get to eat celebrity meat. Oh, that was not what I was expecting that to be. I think they struggled to get any celebrities to sign up for it. <laughs> Can't think why. And I'm not quite sure why you would want to actually eat somebody. But what they want to do is they'll take a sample themselves from a celebrity and then they'll make salami from them. I think what they should call it is salami, because it's like um, <laughs> a really bad name. And they give a couple of examples here. So they got Kanye West. Well, Kanye West, and you can tweet him from their website to try and encourage him to sign up. The Kanye salami will pull no punches. Heavy and boldly flavoured, pure Kanye West meat will blend with rich coarse brown pork, Hungarian paprika, and Worcester sauce give Kanye an underlying smokiness. Spiced up with hints of jalapeno, the Kanye salami is best paired with a strong straight bourbon. This begs the question, which celebrity would you most like to eat salami of? I'm not really a celebrity fan, so I'd struggle there to think who I'd want to. <laughs> Nobody comes to mind that I don't want to eat meat that tastes of somebody. Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. Yep. <laughs> be quite solid. <laughs> you know, it'd be healthy. Lots of protein in there. Uh-huh. That's the way of finding out whether people fed different diets taste in different ways. You just get a range of celebrity salamis. Get a famous vegan, get a famous pescatarian, get a famous bodybuilder, and then you'll be able to taste the difference. I think this could really work. I don't know why it hasn't actually been taken up. I think they tried to start in about 2014 and they're still struggling to find, I think, their first celebrity. And it's, it's a mystery why. Well, for all the celebrities listening to Casting Lots podcast, reach out. <laughs> Does that mean we have to volunteer <laughs> as cannibalism enthusiasts? <laughs> they should be sponsoring you. Honestly, let's get in touch. Continuing with our menu, so maybe going off to the polar regions now. And I think this is a bit more of a palate cleanser, really. So I'm thinking, I'd imagine if you had been eating someone, you probably want to attempt to wash your mouth out after in some way. Bit stuck in your teeth. And obviously lemons are really important to stop it. So I've got some lemon sorbet here, which is actually melted, unfortunately. But of course, it's still got a little bit of meat in there. So it's got some salami in there. (laughs) Good combination. I'm not eating that one. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not having that one. I'm sorry. Well, try the try the yellow stuff, mate. The yellow, okay. Is, is yellow ice? Mm, never eat yellow snow. Mm-hmm. So the the saltiness there um, really does not work at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're not meant to drink the salt water because it just dehydrates you, and yet really you're embodying more of the survival cannibalism experience by having salty ice lemon mush with salami in it <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's delicious i mean this is this is fine dining at its best i don't know why it hasn't caught on immersive experiences are becoming more and more popular so i feel like if we could rent out a warehouse we could combine your menu and our background knowledge and could have a very bespoke tasting menu. Actually, there's a Swedish vegan meat substitute manufacturer called Oomph. And for Halloween last year, they made a special human meat burger. 
which I did email them the other day asking if there's any still available because I'd like to get hold of some, please, because I'm coming on casting lots and I've never heard back from them for some reason. Oh, that is a marketing opportunity that they are fools not to have taken. We'll bleep out the name so they don't get any sponsorship out of not giving you free human burgers. I want to be on the customer services team who receives an email like, for personal reasons, I really need a human meat burger. <laughs> Do you have any left? It is urgent. <laughs> yeah, please, please, please. I must know what it tastes of. I think a lot of places and organisations do start to get a little bit nervous when you start talking about cannibalism. We have some merch. It took a little bit of effort to find somewhere that would in fact print our merch as I did get a few rather formal emails being like, we will not print something that condones extreme violence and cannibalism. And I had to write a very professional and polite email, including all of our stats and all of our links. And it's like, no, we're an educational podcast. We're not endorsing murder. <laughs> Please, can we have some pens? We're not recommending it. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Do you worry that some of your listeners are maybe more inclined on the cannibalism side? And they may be listening because they've got a bit of a fetish. Yes. I hadn't worried about it until now. <laughs> don't be not, don't worry. <laughs> I think that's more of a them problem than an us problem, to be honest. Oh, it's definitely a them problem. That's actually the end of our menu, but we've done a few episodes on spices and one we did was on pepper. So there were so many shipments of pepper going around and turmeric and cumin and all sorts. So there could be loads of amazing flavours that you could be adding if you get shipwrecked on a nice, like, spice-carrying ship, then, I mean, you make some fine meals, I think, actually. The opportunities are endless. And, of course, we have to remember that these are just the sort of food-based things that are consumed. We also have leather and coins and that guy who sucked on his pocket watch. So pretty much anything that can fit in a human mouth, at some point, someone will have tried to eat. Whether or not it had any nutritional value or flavour is neither here nor there. Yeah, no, uh, the desperation, you're going to go to the extremes first. You're going to be, okay, what can I put in my mouth before I put this person's arm in my mouth? <laughs> Just chewing on bits of sail, bits of rope, turtle duck. <laughs> I did try and avoid those on the menu. I was trying to think what I could use for leather, and I don't think Anton wanted me to use his football boots. No. <laughs> Shoes are always one of the first things to go. Too late now. At least you know you've saved them just in case. So what was your favourite on that tasting menu, Rick and Anton? Did you have any that were edible? Um, For me, the dandelion wasn't particularly tasty. I loved dandelion and burdock. And the ship's biscuits with the seaweed were very unpleasant. My polar salami was very unpleasant and the human arm wasn't very tasty either what about you Anton I actually enjoyed my own arm <laughs> I'm glad that I didn't try the dessert and the dandelion wasn't very nice so probably just my arm so you're gonna stick straight to the cannibalism no extra flavorings just meat probably just the, the fresh clean stuff we do do some weird things on this podcast <laughs> I suspected that you would be game to have a little play at how can we make cannibalism in the 21st century kitchen and you have more than supplied and entertained, even if it was 
through having to eat some rather unpleasant things, which may or may not, for legal purposes, have actually contained any human flesh, but were inspired by casting lots of survival cannibalism podcast. It's a pity that you can actually join us at the banquet here, which I'm sure you'd have really enjoyed it as well. For our menu, you didn't actually think of anything nice tasting, which is a bit of a shame. I'm trying to be slightly authentic to how it would have really been. Thank you so much for sharing your recipe recommendations with us today, inviting us to dinner and for the live reactions. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything that you would like to plug before you go? Yeah, so we're the Curiosity of a Child podcast. So you can go to curiosityofachild.com or curiechildpod on Twitter to find out all about us. We've recorded not just on Courts Medicine, but also History of Flight, The First Man to Fish Broth, The Sun. We've done Spices, some Guernsey greats, which is like we look at great people from Guernsey. We've done Fairies as well. One of my personal favourite was Conkers. Yeah, so uh, that's us. So yeah, please listen. And uh, thanks very much for having us. Thank you very much. That looked absolutely disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) It was. And now to welcome two of our next guests who you may probably recognise from a certain affiliated podcast. We have Teddy and Katrina from Grave History. If you would like to introduce yourselves. Hi, my name is Katrina and I am one of the co-hosts of Grave Histories. We do the podcast because we're both interested in like dark history so to speak and i'm actually doing a phd in dark tourism at the moment so you know this is very academically relevant and therefore everything i do is technically work so there we have it i don't know loads about survival cannibalism i kind of know bits and pieces i did just read the indifferent stars above which is about the donna party and it's probably the best like non-fiction book i've ever read and i'm teddy i am also you know a host of grape history as we've established I'm currently doing a history degree, but my kind of interest in, you know, macabre history and particularly survival cannibalism kind of comes mostly from getting introduced to the Franklin Expedition and really just going into the exhibition that they held many, many times. And I really like it as a narrative thing in fiction as well. It comes up in a podcast I like called The Magnus Archives, which is a lot of fun. Katrina, one of the things I did want to ask was, we are on a bit of a mission here at Casting Lots to try and get ourselves cited as some sort of expert text. So we were just wondering, if cannibalism does come up in the PhD, would we be your first port of call? Oh yeah, totally. So my PhD focuses specifically on like gender and dark tourism specifically like murder gender and dark tourism so you know if there's like i don't know are there any cases that you think have like an interesting like gender angle to them my head immediately goes to raising up and talking about the donna party picnic site 
I feel if you're after dark tourism. Yeah, you know, that's actually a place I really want to visit. Morbid audio holiday, I'm hearing here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm down. Probably not a cruise. I think our overall luck, you know, if it's how we go, retracing the route of the Donna party as a group of underprepared Brits. This time it's going to work out. I can feel it. We won't take the advice of a random guy. You can feel it in your bones, can you? <sighs> that story, though, is like way more harrowing than I thought it was going to be. Does that make sense? Like, Because I knew it from like pop culture, but then I actually read the book and I was like, oh, this is awful. <laughs> this is really grim. There are children. Lots of children, yeah. And just the idea of, like, it's not just the cannibalism, but, you know, the being trapped in the snow is just awful. And obviously in those times, it was all those people had, you know, to just pack their entire lives into a wagon and just whoosh, across the country. So, ugh. And also how long it took. Mm. We're quite used to with the funny fun on boats ones, it being a case of you go, you sink, everything's over within a couple of months. Sometimes less. Sometimes less, but standard is 10 days between you're emaciated, you're running out of food, and you start cannibalising or you die. The Donner Party, I'm like, they are going on and on and on for months just trying to, you know, see through to the next day. It is an odd topic to make a comedy podcast about, but hey, we've done all right. And they really got to know each other as well, you know, in that time. That's just an opening for me to say gastronomic incest. Oh. And I don't want to rise to it. <laughs> My life is complete. I've been in an episode where I heard Alex say gastronomic incest. You can hear Alex say that literally any time. <laughs> I wonder if anyone has spliced all of the times I've said gastronomic incest together into a ringtone. I mean, I'm going to now. <laughs> Now, I know it was mentioned that in Grave History, while you've had a couple of survival cannibal-esque episodes, I'm thinking most obviously of Franklin. Yes. But also, this is stretching the definition of survival, but we do like to do that. You have talked about Penny Dreadfuls before? That was one of your favourites, wasn't it? That was a passion project of mine. I'm sort of thinking if we're stretching survival cannibalism, if we're taking survival into the means to survive and live a normal-ish life. Sure. Sweeney Todd? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Sweeney Todd's fascinating to me because a lot of people think it's a real story. If you go to the London Dungeon, they've got a Sweeney Todd bit, obviously, but they've also got, you know, their Jack the Ripper bit, and there's, like, basically no effort to show one of these is fictional and one of these is not. What has been interesting in some of the cases we've looked at is that in real life there have been Sweeney Todd-esque things happening. People 100% have been baked into food products. Not necessarily pies, but human meat has been sold in food markets. I think I remember reading about a kebab. Oh, God. So this is one of my childhood fears, which presumably came about from hearing about Sweeney Todd, is that one day I will eat human meat without realising it's human meat. And that's the bit that bothers me. Like, if you're in a survival situation, it's on your own terms and you're conscious that you're doing it. 
but I really hate the idea of being tricked into eating human meat and only afterwards it being revealed. Haha. What if you never found out? Yeah. This is the other thing that bothers me. What if I have already eaten human meat? <laughs> If you ever eaten a cinema hot dog, then you've definitely eaten something that you probably shouldn't have. That was always my take on the horse meat scandal, because, full disclosure, the uni supermarket was a horse meat one. <laughs> so I'm like, the timings add up. I was a student. I will have got through a lot of dodgy pasta and lasagna. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I probably got caught up in the horse meat somewhere. And it's like, do you know what? I don't actually object to having eaten horse. It's the not knowing and not having the right to choose what you consume. You know, a lot of people were like, oh, I can't believe I ate horse. And I was like, well, you eat other meat, man. What's the difference, really? I kind of feel the same way about offal. It's it meat's meat. That's just my personal opinion that it's a bit weird to be really precious about what type of meat you eat, unless you, you know, just don't like the flavour or whatever. You're absolutely right, though, not knowing. You should consent to what you eat. And preferably what you eat when it's a human will consent to being eaten. <laughs> to bring it back to the subject of cannibalism. Do you have a hot take on that? You know, like, remember 20 years ago, there was a whole thing about the German guy who wanted to be eaten. Do you have a hot take on, on that? I mean, that one wasn't a survival situation. <laughs> No, sorry, I know I'm kind of bringing it on you a bit there. No kink shaming here at Casting Lots. Of course not. I suppose that we have, as a society, collectively agreed that legally a person can't consent to GBH or being murdered. Right, yeah. On that logic alone, still wrong even with consent? I think it will change if and when the laws about organ donation changes, because currently you have to opt in to organ donation because your body, even after death, is viewed as some sort of connection to personhood. If they ever change those laws... They have changed them in Scotland. So basically what we're saying is in Scotland, cannibalism is fine. <laughs> yep. But currently, under this goddamn Tory government, <laughs> they're not letting us engage in our consensual cannibalism practices. And that's the worst thing they've done. Indie Ref 2. This time it's cannibalism. <laughs> I'm going to create a new party, and that's the platform I'm going to run on. I'd vote for you. As well as Sweeney Todd, another one that's come up in your podcast that isn't really by any stretch of the imagination survival cannibalism but maybe of interest to our listeners is Sawney Bean. Yes now that's an interesting story because it's probably fake but it's probably got basis in something. It's kind of a bit like an exaggerated story because I don't think there's any compelling historical evidence that literally thousands of people were murdered by this guy. Seems like a big task. But if you come to the Edinburgh Dungeon, there is a Sawney Bean pit. Ah, so similar approach to London Dungeons going, here's real historical stuff, and here's fake. Yep, it's right next to the Birkin Hare thing, which absolutely was a real story. I've taken a quick look at Sawney Bean, and there's just a wonderful little section, full disclosure, Wikipedia, which is the broadside from 1750, being the Scottish traditional story of... Sandy Bain, who was a murderer who had been eating live cats. 
How dare he? Not the cats. Live. So it's almost like we start with cats, then we build up to children, and then maybe horses, and then a thousand people consumed by one man. Ah, so this guy is Renfield. I see. It'd be insanely difficult to eat a live cat. Yeah, why not deal with that problem first? It's like some sort of bastardised Pied Piper of Hamlin situation. (laughs) You use the cats to round up the children who round up the adults and now you're great. It's a great story, but you said it first appeared in a broadside. Broadsides are kind of the precursor to the Penny Dreadful in some ways. Is one of those ways the perhaps lack of authenticity of some of those stories? Yeah, I mean, a broadside is kind of the information that would be given out to the public, you know, around like a hanging or another execution. And they normally like have some song lyrics and then some lurid descriptions of the crime in them. So a lot of it, they did just make stuff up for just to, you know, because it made it more interesting (laughs) because you could just do that back then. And it rhymed better in the song. Oh, he ate 28 men doesn't sound as good as he ate a thousand men. Yeah. I'm sure everyone, including us, wants to know what the future coming up for grave history is. So I'm currently working on my dissertation, which is to do with Victorian burial reform and garden cemeteries. So most likely we will see probably several episodes or at least a couple on that so that it counts as, you know, academic work. And I know you have several part twos planned. Yes, I have a few part twos sort of in the pipelines. I did like a part one about water and sea related mysteries incidents. So we did like the Flannan Isles mystery, which is fascinating. And I was working on a part two that looked at some unusual kinds of ghosts that live near water, as well as I was also looking at sunken villages because that's a topic I find fascinating. So hopefully that'll pop up. I also want to do a part two on the Cold War that looks a bit more at like some of the stories of espionage and assassination that happened because I mean it's a huge topic and I was originally going to make it all one episode but then I was like no I've got too much and that episode will hopefully be less of a bummer than the first one. I just remembered a topic I want to cover which is appropriate for the podcast we're currently on. I would at some point like to do an episode on Egyptomania particularly the use of putting you know mummies in paint and also consuming them thus leading to the deficit in mummies. Which, in looking at alternative ways of defining survival cannibalism, can be considered survival cannibalism. Medical cannibalism is a form of surviving through cannibalism. I've never heard of medical cannibalism. I would recommend to you the book Mummies, Cannibals and Vampires by Richard Sugg, who has previously appeared on this podcast. And that's all about medical cannibalism and the use of mummy in that sort of context. I just looked it up and it said medical cannibalism also means cannibalism like in the sense of exploitation, illegal organ transplants and like organ trafficking, which is something I know a little bit about. Ah, because the laws are different in Scotland. (laughs) I partake in it frequently. We actually hit on that a bit in our body snatching episode, right? We were talking about the sort of modern body snatching which is you know illegal organ trading and trafficking of human remains which doesn't involve eating i will say or rather the cases we looked at didn't but you know you're still metaphorically cannibalizing the bodies just because the organs aren't being taken in via the mouth 
doesn't mean they're not being incorporated into someone else's body. I was really trying not to say being taken in orally there. (laughs) (laughs) Steady. Steady now. (laughs) Before we let both of you go, I think it's time for the obvious question. Would you eat a dead body if you had to? Would you eat each other's dead bodies if you had to? Yeah. I would have to be a slow cooking option because... I, I feel like I'd render down really nicely. No, I mean, I'm fine with that. I'm just, what's the situation? You know, because I'm going to say yes if I need it to survive because... Yeah, I'm not just going to do it for fun. It's us. It's a survival situation. You're both on a lifeboat in the sea. It's been months. There's no hope of rescue. You've run out of your rations. Why not? I'm fine with being eaten. I'd rather, like, die naturally, but if you have to kill me, then... So be it. Can I point out that this is in fact the wrong answer? Oh no. The correct answer is please use each other's dead bodies to fish with. (laughs) Trick question. Oh. Here I am gnawing on Katrina's leg. Oh god damn it. I wish I'd known that. I could have been fishing. I don't want to put extra work in. I can't be bothered at this point. Come on. (laughs) I would like to be eaten by octopuses. I think that would be nice. If I can't be cannibalised to save someone else, I sort of feel like I'd like to be fed to sharks. I am here for death-positive advocacy, okay? If you tell me that's what you want done with your remains, that is what I will do for you. But also, the situation you brought up is very dependent on there being fish. What if it was a different scenario, like a kind of Andes... Oh, in which case, going straight to the cannibalism is the sensible option. I'd last about 45 minutes, I think, before I would go for the cannibalism. Well, I think on that note... (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Teddy and Katrina, for joining us today. It's been lovely to be here. No problem. Before you go, is there anything that either of you two want to plug? Any upcoming projects or even just a favourite episode of Grave History you want everyone to go back to and listen to now? For a favourite episode, I'd say the Moral Panic episode. So Penny Dreadfuls and Video Nasties is my baby and I love her. And bits of it are increasingly relevant still, unfortunately. I would have to go for the one that's prescient to my dissertation, which is, you know, cholera, Jon Snow. It's a very weak pun and I apologise for it daily, but it had to be done and I really enjoyed making it. It's a great episode. Amazing. We'll pop a link in the show notes to go and check out the Grave History podcast if you haven't already, dear listeners. Hint, hint. You should have already. And with that, we will let you go. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode featuring Richard Sugg, the Curiosity of a Child podcast and the Grave History podcast. Join us next time to sit down with two authors of historical fiction. Casting Lots podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr as at Casting Lots Pod and on Facebook as Casting Lots Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And please rate, review and share to bring more people to the table. Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast, is research written and recorded by Alex and Carmela, with post-production and editing also by Carmela and Alex. Art and logo design by Ashley, at Tallest Friend on Twitter and Instagram, with audio and music by Daniel Wackett, Daniel Wackett on SoundCloud and at DSWack on Twitter. Casting Lots is part of the Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Search hashtag Morbid Audio on Twitter and the network's music is provided by Michaela Moody. Michaela Moody 1 on Bandcamp. Morbid Audio Podcast Network.